Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're in Acts. We're in chapter 28, and we're nearing the end of our study, very extensive study, and we hope you've enjoyed it thus far. And we really appreciate Mark and his diligence for this series. I think it's quite amazing, actually. And we'll, as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Leslie, would you open us, please? Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are there and you gave us your word and the living word, Jesus. And we thank you that you let us know more about you through your word. Thank you for this time we have together to learn more and more about you so that we can enjoy you forever in the future. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Good evening, Mark. Oh, good evening, uh, Tom and Leslie. It's good to be back with you and all of those who are listening from afar. We finally got Paul to Rome last time. And just to set the stage here, we'll review a little bit, but let's read what happens here immediately after he gets to Rome, and let's read in, in Acts 28, verses 17 down through 22. Three days later, he called together the leaders of the Jews. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me, because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of the brothers who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. Great. Thank you very much. So we pointed out uh, last time that you would think that the culmination of the book of Acts would be 
Paul's trial before the Supreme Court of Rome, before Nero's legal representative, you would think that might be the climax of the book. Instead, we see that the Roman custody of Paul continues to be a relatively light thing, that throughout the book of Acts, Rome has been a friend to Paul uh, over and over again and rescued him from mostly Judeans trying to kill him. But every now and then we have pagans like the silversmiths in Ephesus who would like to have killed Paul. And the Roman law uh, served to protect Paul, who was a Roman citizen. And so he's got a soldier probably who escorts him around. I'm not even sure that he was literally chained to the soldier, although he could have been. He he talks about here about being chained. But the important thing as far as Luke's concerned is not when Paul finally gets before Nero, which was probably dismissed immediately when he got there. Instead, the climax of the book of Acts here is Paul with the leaders of the synagogues of the Judean communities uh, amongst Rome and And again, the scholars believe there were around 90, but there could have been more, counting some smaller ones that may not have had the 10 uh, Judean males, 90 to 120, say. And so some of these men have come together, and Paul talks to them. We really need to understand the synagogue setting in the first century to understand the whole New Testament. We have talked about that in some of our previous settings, particularly in Acts 13, the first big lesson of Paul. But we see how open these communities were. They were very pluralistic communities involving all of the sects of the Judeans. And they welcomed visitors and invited them to say new things. You couldn't pull that off in most churches today. But here these people are eager to hear from Paul, they, because they've heard that, that his sect is spoken uh, everywhere against. And so they want to hear uh, something new, something a little different. And again, sadly, most Christians today don't want to hear anything new. They certainly don't want to be bothered by facts or anything that would disturb their traditions, their family religion, family beliefs, and their, in most cases, their end-time hopes, which so many think are imminently upon them, looking to physical resurrection of physical bodies, of a physical kingdom in physical Jerusalem, and so on and so forth. But these men were open-minded, and they wanted to hear about Paul's views because of the reputation that had preceded him. And let's go ahead and read now 23 down through 29, please. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. From morning till evening he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth 
to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. All right. Thank you. So even though they wanted to hear Paul, he runs into the same thing that he's run into in nearly every synagogue community that he's entered around the Roman world. A a minority of the Judeans believe, and the majority become really opposed to what Paul's saying. And usually when he gets to that part about the I will take this good news to the nations, Gentiles, I don't like that translation, but it's in most of our English Bibles, but it's to the other nations, any other nation other than Judea is what that word Gentile means, the nations. The Judeans usually break out into a a rage. If they did so here, it's not mentioned, but they were having much discussion amongst themselves after he said this. Now, put Tom and Leslie on the spot here. What is Paul using as his source document for this day-long discussion with these Judean leaders? Is he the using law of Moses. The, ah, the law of Moses and the prophets. And In the other prophets. words, yeah, all of the Hebrew scriptures. And have we seen that anywhere before in the book of Acts? <laughs> all the way through. All the way through, but yet, has anyone ever had this pointed out in a in an auditorium Bible class or in a sermon? I've never, never heard this pointed out. Perhaps some of you come from a more broad denomination than I do, but uh, this is not commonly pointed out. It is so prevalent that we can basically make the statement, there is nothing new in the New Testament. Everything that Paul writes about in his letters, and what he he wrote way over half of the New Testament himself, he is paraphrasing and commenting on Old Testament passages, just like he's been doing at every stop recorded in the book of Acts. He is expounding out of the Old Testament the gospel and Jesus Christ, but he calls it, he has a few names for it which we talked about during his trials, he says, I preach nothing but the truth. <laughs> well, that's not, yeah, but that's not what he, that's not the term that he used. He says, I preach nothing but the blank God. of blank. Gospel, gospel of Christ. Yeah, see, that's not what he says. He never says that. When he's on trial, he says, I preach nothing but the hope of Israel. Oh, that's right. Okay. Now, yeah. Okay, yeah. But the hope of Israel is the gospel of Christ, okay? <laughs> so you weren't wrong, but you that wasn't the terms that Paul used. And so he used the term the hope of Israel, and he used the term resurrection uh, almost synonymously. And yet when Luke 
is describing what Paul is teaching about, like he does here in verse 23. How does Luke describe what his main subject is? Right in the middle of verse 23. Do you see it there? Uh, Yeah, the kingdom of God. Exactly. But yet when Paul describes it in his trials, he just says that he's taught nothing but the hope of Israel. So how would you logically connect the hope of Israel to the kingdom of God? Is well, there a connection? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes, thank you, Tom. They're, they are obviously synonymous. Resurrection, the hope of Israel, the kingdom of God, and then, of course, the gospel of Christ are all synonymous. Now, that is not the way that it is taught in most churches today, whether they're dispensational or not. It is not taught that way in the vast, vast majority of churches. But Paul is completely focused on the Hebrew Scriptures, and he believes that the kingdom of God is the hope of Israel, and that that involves resurrection. And we looked at several passages when we were in the trials of Paul demonstrating that the resurrection would occur when Messiah came. Mm-hmm. Okay, not thousands of years after Messiah came, but when Messiah came. And I did spend some time this week uh, looking at the internet at Jewish sites. If you look up resurrection of the dead, it's quite fascinating because, again, they, they talk about a physical bodily resurrection that is confined to the land of Israel. The resurrection will only occur in the physical borders of physical Israel. That's why the four French uh, Jews who were butchered in that deli, their bodies were sent to Israel to be buried, if you noticed that in the news reports here a few weeks ago. Yes. Yeah, uh, that's because many, many Orthodox Jews still hold to this idea that the resurrection will only occur within the borders of physical Israel. But in Paul's mind, and and we we have one session at least on Ezekiel 37, the vision of the dry bones, resurrection involved the national resurrection of Israel. Israel has been scattered and sundered. And again, I hope to get Tom a a photo that he can post here on our website that you can link to, to where I have all this sketched out. Uh, as kind of a timeline, but Israel had been sundered as a nation. Time and time again, it was reduced to a pitiful remnant, and God grew it back from a pitiful remnant. Judea, at this time, was the remnant of all of Israel. But when the kingdom came, all Israel would be regathered and restored. This is Paul's message. This was Jesus' message. And that, to Paul, was resurrection. Israel was being resurrected as a kingdom. Nearly all the Jewish websites will make it extremely clear that the idea of resurrection in Jewish thought is totally different from the idea of immortality of the soul. Hmm. And that resurrection, it does involve bodily corpses coming out of the ground to become part of the physical kingdom in physical Israel. But the resurrection is the idea of national restoration And it's totally separate and apart from the idea of an immortal uh, spirit uh, being with God forever. 
and so I have verified that that uh, my notes and uh, I'm using Don Preston's outline from Ardmore, Oklahoma. Uh, he he told me that was true, but I verified it this week that 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 is uh, very much the case. It's also interesting if you do the same search uh, Jewish thought on the end of the world, you will get lots and lots of pages, and not one of them will talk about the universe being consumed in fire, like all the Christian churches think Peter was talking about in Second Peter 3. To, to the Jew today and to the Pharisees of Paul's time, the end of the world was speaking of the end of the old age and the dawning of Messiah's age, the establishment of the kingdom which, of course, Paul here is, is obsessed about, and he's trying to set them straight. They were locked into the same physical view of the kingdom of God and the physical restoration of Israel that the Orthodox Jews are to this very day, 2,000 years later. And they were just as wrong as the Jews and the dispensationalists are about that uh, today. If there had been agreement, we wouldn't see the the vast majority of these Judean leaders not believing and, and disbelieving and grumbling and getting upset with Paul. Paul obviously had a very different view of the hope of Israel, resurrection, the restoration of the kingdom of God, and Messiah than did most of those Jews there at that time. And we've seen that over and over again here in the last part of Acts. Now, just a few months after Acts 28, things changed dramatically, and I can't recall if we mentioned this last week, but yeah, I think we started to. A delegation of the Sanhedrin from Jerusalem came up. Popea got them an audience before Nero, and they persuaded Nero to use the full power of Rome to crush these Christian heretics within the synagogue communities and I personally believe that this was the beginning of what we call the great tribulation three and a half years of absolute misery that cost the vast majority of Christians in the Roman Empire their physical lives and I believe this is the context of of revelation to the seven churches of Asia be faithful unto death and you will receive a crown of life, and so on. It was a time of intense, immediate persecution. Now, Paul's last letter is Second Timothy, and I believe that this letter is written after this great tribulation has begun, and Paul is arrested a second time and sent up before Nero's court a second time, but this time, of course, he will be convicted, and he will be uh, beheaded, as was the form of execution used for Roman citizens. And he writes to Timothy, The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished the course. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me on that day. So things change dramatically from Acts 28 to the tone in Second Timothy, where it doesn't look good at all. But he's finished his course. I mean, that's the main thing. He's been obsessed with the kingdom of God. At our live class on Acts on Sunday morning, 
we kind of came up with a new allegory. Israel has been in a cocoon since the day of Pentecost. Israel is still Israel, but there's a transformation taking place behind the scenes or in the cocoons, so to speak. Israel is being transformed from this ugly, hideous caterpillar into this beautiful butterfly, the bride of Christ that is described for us there at the end of Revelation. Uh, She's being transformed from the harlot bride of Yahweh into the stunningly perfect bride of Christ. This is the work that is ongoing during Paul's work, during his ministry. And so that hasn't quite happened yet. The butterfly has not emerged from the cocoon, but he knows it is extremely imminent. And so he can speak confidently. I believe that this is the day that he is uh, mentioning there in uh, 2 Timothy 4, 6, when he will receive his crown of righteousness. That will be on the day that the uh, butterfly comes forth Historically, we don't know the day or the hour when that occurred, but we know from all the prophets that this would not occur until the old harlot bride had been done away with, till she had been burned and stoned for her adultery and murder. And, of course, the entire physical nation of Judea was eliminated, not just in Palestine and Jerusalem, but throughout the whole Roman Empire, entire communities of 50,000 in Alexandria, in Damascus, were butchered in one day by the Roman people. Kind of like if you turned the rednecks in America loose on the Muslims, you know, and gave them carte blanche. That's what happened to the Judean people as the Roman people just had no police state to stop them, and they just butchered all of them throughout the empire. But anyway, Paul can see all of this, and he is satisfied to end his physical life. He is not worried about that at all. The other important point here is that we see in Rome, even though Paul is the apostle to who? Does anyone remember? The Gentiles, the nation. Exactly, the other nations, the non-Judean nations. There were 12 apostles to Judea. And Paul had to go to everybody else. (laughs) And so you would think with those numbers, right, that the last group of people in a new city that Paul would go to would be the Judeans, right? But that's not what we see. He always goes to the Judeans first. He talks about this in his Roman letter. He goes to the Judean first and then to the Greek, and the Judeans reject the gospel, and the God-fearing foreigners in the back of the synagogue get so excited that they, they come out of their chairs with joy, and they can't, they can't let go of Paul and, and his company, they're, they're, because they are being told that they are going to be citizens of Israel of the highest standing in spite of their foreign birth and in spite of not even being circumcised. Paul was preaching and saying that Old Covenant Israel's rejection of the fulfillment of God's promises made to Israel were in fact bringing about 
the very kingdom, the Messiah, the salvation that had been promised to her. He's saying that God's promises from the very beginning to Israel were spiritual in nature, not physical. Never in the book of Acts and not here in this closing argument does Paul ever make any allusion to the fact that God's plan had failed, that God's promises to Israel had failed, and that they were going to have to punt. They were going to have to come up with a plan B. They were going to have to create some temporary entity to kind of be God's focus for a few thousand years until he could try again with Israel. We just don't see any hint of that in this discourse or in any other discourse or in any letter that Paul wrote. Paul is quoting here from Isaiah 6. And Isaiah 6 is telling us the same thing, that God's promises are different from what the people want to hear. They are spiritual in nature, and the people are going to insist on something physical in nature, and they will not see with their eyes, they will not hear with their ears, they will not understand with their heart, they will not be converted so that God can heal them. The healing takes place in the spiritual kingdom of God. Here's something Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. We speak wisdom, not the wisdom of this world, nor the rulers of this world who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom, which was hidden in ages foretold, but it has now been revealed to us by God through the Spirit. So again, there's nothing new in the New Testament, but the New Testament explains the mystery, the wisdom of God that is hidden in mystery in the Old Testament, that these things are going to be fulfilled spiritually, revealed to us by God through the Spirit. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. I bear them record to God that they have a zeal for righteousness, but they are ignorant of the righteousness which is of God, and going back to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted themselves to the righteousness which is of God. So they can't communicate. They're on two totally different wavelengths. And in our examination of the Gospel of John, we see Christ pointing out what Paul's pointing out, that these things have to be interpreted spiritually. And his audience kept trying to interpret them physically. And it's, it's humor running all through the Gospel of John. It's not humorous, though, to Paul here in Romans 10, because he is so upset that his kinsmen, according to the flesh, just don't get it and won't, won't even listen to it. They, they're demanding this physical salvation, a salvation in their own form, in, in their own paradigm. So it's important for us to see that Paul's message of preaching the hope of Israel is given always to Israel first, but he expects that they will reject it. He knows that they are married to the temple. They're married to the physical sacrifices, to the existing priesthood. They will not give up these shadows and move on to the reality. In other words, they're, they're staying attached to the old 
husk of the cocoon and they do not want to be taken into the butterfly that is about to emerge uh, here, which will be the new Israel, the new spiritual Israel. So he has to go to the Judean first, and they're going to reject it, and then he's going to offer it to the foreign people. If Paul knew all along that the greater part of Israel was not going to accept Christ, then how can Paul say in Romans that all Israel will be saved? Paul understood the scriptures as well as anyone, and he knew the, the, the sad history that at no given point in Israel's history had God ever saved an entire generation. Unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a remnant, we would be like Sodom and we would be like Gomorrah. Time and time in Israel's history, it is just a remnant that survives. Sodom and Gomorrah were completely wiped out. But God had left a remnant to prevent Israel in each act of judgment over and over in their history. God protected a remnant so that the nation would not be totally annihilated as they properly deserved. So, Paul knew that God was saving a remnant, and this was his goal in getting to Rome, was to reach that remnant within the Judean synagogue communities and to preach the gospel to them and let them move on to eternal life through Jesus Christ. In Romans 9... Paul writes about this. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for his destruction? Well, again, he is quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Hosea chapter 8, where God called the ten northern tribes of Israel vessels of wrath. And the whole book of Hosea is, is pronouncing their doom, that they will cease to exist as a physical nation forevermore, and that they will be scattered like seed into all the nations of the earth. And they were vessels of wrath. So in Romans 9, Paul is again alluding to the Old Testament, the idea that the vast majority of Israel were vessels of wrath prepared for utter destruction. And then continuing in verse 23 of Romans 9, he says, And that they might make known the riches of the glory of the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So these are contrasted to the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Even us whom he called, not of the Judeans only, but also of the Gentiles. So the vast majority of Israel in God's plan had to be destroyed so that God's new creation, his new Israel, his new bride, could be perfectly created through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. This is a mystery, and Paul knows it's a mystery as he tries to explain it in all of his letters. But if we understand the basics, if we study our Old Testament, if we understand that we have to interpret these promises spiritually, it can make sense to us. Amos 5, verses 1 and 2. The virgin daughter of Israel is fallen and will never rise again. 
That was a message to the ten northern tribes. They would be regathered when Messiah came, but not as a physical nation ever again. And again, we've talked about a lot of these concepts as we've looked in the book of Acts. We've looked at how after Solomon died, that the ten northern tribes were were wrested from the house of David, and they were cut off from what God calls the sure mercies of David. This was Paul's theme, recall, in Acts 13, when he was in the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia. The restoration of the tabernacle of David, which allowed all peoples of all nations to have access to God's throne, and to take part in the sure mercies of David. Israel had been cut off, and God says that it was his idea to do it. So God has been working this great mystery to bring about the downfall of physical Israel to bring about the deliverance of the bride that he is creating for his son. Okay, we come to another powerful prophecy in Genesis 49, verse 10. These are... These are the predictions that Israel is making on his deathbed for all of his descendants. Jacob, uh, renamed Israel, the father of the twelve patriarchs. In his section about Judah, Genesis 49.10, he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. To him shall the gathering of the people be. That's quite fascinating. Uh, Jewish and Muslim and Christian commentators pretty much all agree that the scepter departed from Judah in A.D. 70 when the entire nation, the temple, Jerusalem, were all completely and utterly destroyed. But this causes a great problem if you are a Jew today because if if the scepter departed way back in A.D. 70, then that's when Shiloh uh, was supposed to have come, a peace. And, of course, that peace is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So uh, they're in a real predicament over Genesis 49.10 there. And, I mean, Paul is warning them again here in Rome, here as the book of Acts winds down, that the scepter is about to be ripped from... Judah's hand and that Messiah is about to come back in judgment and we it's been a while since we talked about that but that's the word parousia in the Greek that is uh, mistranslated as second coming in many of our English Bibles but it was it's not dealing with the end of the universe or the end of time the parousia is dealing with the son of the king returning to the vineyard and finding evil men there, and he throws them out into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this is imminent as Acts 28 occurs as Paul is writing. This parousia, this this formal return of the Son to Israel is, is about to happen. And, of course, this calls to mind... Uh, Peter's message back in Acts 3 after reminding them of what Moses said in Deuteronomy 
He says it will be that every soul who will not hear that prophet, a prophet like unto Moses, will be utterly destroyed uh, from among the people. So, again, we, we see this consistent warning. Peter gave it in Acts 3. Paul gives it again here to these Judeans in Acts 28. So, well, it it takes a lot of study to leave a lifetime of tradition or perhaps multiple generations of tradition. But I would just say that as we've gone through uh, Acts here and all the way to the end, we see uh, just a great consistency that God's eternal purpose was to work a work of creation on Israel, to recreate her to turn her from something flawed and sinful into something complete and perfect. And this is the gospel of Christ. This is the body of Christ. The kingdom of Christ is made up of living stones of believers. The body of Christ, the bride of Christ, is made up of members of that body. And so it's it's the same spiritual truth taught with different symbols. All right, well, that's kind of my comment here on Acts 28. Any any last thoughts here? We'll, we'll try next time to uh, go back through the book of Acts quickly and just hit the high points that are missed or avoided or ignored or buried by most uh, commentators, clergy, and religious potentates uh, in our day and age. But any, any last thoughts or comments here on the... Paul in, in Rome in Acts 28. Yes, I, I recall Jesus when he was baptized said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's certainly true. <laughs> well, yes, absolutely. And again, it not deferred for thousands of years, but that it was it was going to, it was in the process of being constructed. Jesus Christ was the chief cornerstone and then the foundation of the apostles, and then the courses of believers are being laid throughout the book of Acts as the Great Commission is completed uh, there in that one generation as commanded by Christ. And then the new temple was about to be dedicated. And again, we, we don't necessarily understand why, but we see passage after passage that tells us that the new temple would be dedicated at the time in which the old physical temple would be destroyed. Yeah, great, Mark. Thank you. And we'll look forward to wrapping it up next week. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.